Well, good morning, everyone. I'm going to start this morning a little bit differently than I typically do, stealing a little bit from uh, Brian's uh, tool chest, but I'm going to start with a prop. Not as elaborate as Brian's props. And I even put it in a bag. Now I've got to figure out how to open this thing. I'm not sure, not sure if you can see what it is, but can you tell what that is? Not a, not a prune. Does a prune come from? What does a prune come from? A plum? Okay, so it's a plum. All right, so, and, and the people at home may not be able to hear you, so you have to answer loud, and I may repeat your answers if I thought your, your, your volume was weak. Uh, but what comes to mind when you see a plum? <laughs> Good, that, that actually fits into my opening illustration. Regularity from the lady in the front. Anyone else? It doesn't have to be profound. What do, what do you think of when you see a nice ripe plum? Sweetness? Okay, little Jack Horner. Sat in the corner. Juicy? Stain? Fall, harvest time? Okay, very good answers. You know what comes to mind every time I see a plum? And this is no lie, and I'm not trying to sound holy. But when I see a plum, it reminds me that serving God comes with a cost. And you may wonder, how in the world do you get that from a plum? Well, let me tell you a story. I've told you about our trip that Alice and I took years ago with the youth group for a couple of weeks to Los Angeles. And one of the days, actually, it was the very first day that we were put to work. Uh, and you have to understand it was about 95 degrees, it was humid, and the ministry that we were partnering with had rules for what you had to wear. And uh, I wear shorts in the winter, if you know me, uh, I like wearing shorts all the time. But this ministry, it was long pants, and a golf shirt was fine. And that's what we had to wear. And on the first day, we had a choice between two or three different options. And I was leading a, a section of the youth. And our group volunteered or were voluntold that we were going to work down at the Port of Los Angeles. And we were going to help sort through fruit that had been donated to this particular ministry, uh, and uh, they would go to different places with this fruit and give it to people who are less fortunate. Uh, and I thought that sounded like a wonderful uh, thing to do. Uh, I love plums, and I figured I could be an expert leading a group of youth working with food for the day. And it was good for about the first 10 minutes. And it was so hot. And we were standing under the sun uh, on a back of the, the port, this big parking lot, I guess. And they were huge wooden crates of plums, 20, 30 crates. And the thing about these plums, they'd been donated because they were either perfectly ripe or they were rotten. And our job was to sift through these crates and pick out the good ones and throw out the bad ones. And, and I started with great energy. I love plums. And so within about the first hour, I'd eaten about 20 plums. While to this day, I don't really get thrilled about eating a plum. Probably for 10 years after that ministry experience, I did not eat a plum. 
After a few hours of sorting through plums, I started questioning my purpose in life. (laughs) What in the world am I doing here? I just took two weeks off of work, and I'm sifting through plums. God, what are you doing? I think there's much greater things that my abilities and giftings could be used for this is horrible. And I wasn't the only one that felt that way. All of our youth and whoever the other leaders uh, were who were with me, we all felt the same way. And by the time I got to the end of that day, I couldn't help wondering, was the effort worth the cost? All that it cost me, all that I could have been doing with my time, Was that cost worth the effort of sifting through ripe and rotting plums? And I'm sure I'm not the only person who's found themselves in a situation where you've found yourself contemplating, is the cost worth it? Is the cost worth the effort that you've put into it? Whether you've volunteered to help someone or you volunteered to do something. I remember uh, in my 20s, I, I partnered in a company with Allison's Cousins, and we had a number of delivery trucks. Uh, and it, it was amazing, all the people that I grew up with at church in Toronto, they didn't like me enough to invite me to their wedding, but they liked me enough to ask if I would help them move into their first home or into their first apartment. And so many times I would show up and nothing was packed or the things weren't packed properly or it was a horrible place to try to get a truck into. And I would question, was it really worth the effort? Was the cost, the day given up, gas in the truck, was it really worth the effort? And again, I'm sure you can think of your own experiences in your own life when that happens. But this morning, I want to ask you, have you ever found yourself thinking about that when it comes to serving God? Have you ever felt or found yourself contemplating, considering the costs of saying yes when the the request for help is given and saying no? I'm not going to serve. I'm not going to volunteer. And I realize some of you who are holier than others are trying really hard to think of a time that you didn't say no. And there's others of us who probably can think of a lot of times we've said no. But the reality is we all have contemplated. We've all considered the costs of serving God because we've all said no one time or another. And sometimes no is the right answer. But as I said, some of us say no a whole lot more uh, than others of, of us do. What are the costs of serving God? And if there is a cost to serving God, why bother? You know, and as I look out this morning, I realize that there's, there's at least four categories of people here. There, there's some of you who might be here this morning, and you don't serve God because you're not in a relationship with God. And so this morning, our prayer for you is is that you would understand why you need to be in a relationship with God in the first place. There's some of you here this morning, and you're in a relationship with God. You would say that you're a follower of God, but you don't serve God. And this morning, my prayer for you is that through the text, you would 
understand the call that God has placed upon your life to be in, in vibrant uh, and energetic service for him. And then there's a third group of you here this morning. You're a follower of God and you are really active in service for God. But you're doing it for all the wrong reasons. And you're exhausted. And you're spent. You don't experience the joy of serving God. And then, I, hopefully it's a lot of you here this morning, you're a follower of God and you're active in service for God and you're doing it for the right reasons, but there are times when you feel the discouragement, when you feel the frustration. And so what can our text this morning say to you that can bring you uh, encouragement and, and refresh that motivation that you have? Well, we're finally at the end. We've been saying it for a while. We're getting to the end. We're at the end of the Misfit series. Uh, For a number of months now, we have been looking to see, to discover how the misfits of Scripture, and if you remember what that definition of misfits is, it's it's a pretty wide definition, and some weeks we've made it wider than, than others. But the misfits of Scripture, those who are black sheep, ostracized, uh, those who are ordinary, those who you being used by God would be unexpected, those who are seemingly unqualified, that we say, we've discovered how the misfits of Scripture have been changed by God, and then they've been used by God to change other people. They've been used by God to move the kingdom of God forward. And if someone pushed me to try to shorten what the whole premise of the Misfit series is, what we have seen week after week after week, it's this. God can change anybody. No matter how far you are from God, no matter what your baggage is, God can change anyone. And God can use anyone. God can use anyone to be used to change the lives of others and to move his kingdom forward. And if I was pushed to even shorten it even more, I would say this is what we've been trying to get across in our series. God changes people so that he can use people. God saves people and the proper response is for that person to serve God. It's easy for us just to focus on the first part, to see all these wonderful stories from Scripture of how God took a misfit and changed them and saved them and transformed them and then kind of ignore the second part. But this morning, I thought it'd be really important as we close off this series is to really focus on the second part, that God changes us so that he can use us. And that's what I love about this series, what I love about the Bible. It's filled with stories of individuals who fit the label misfit and are saved, are changed, are transformed, and then they're called by God to serve Him in some of the most extraordinary scenarios that you can imagine. And one of the individuals of Scripture that I think perfectly fits that is Jeremiah. Last week and the week before, we we talked about Nehemiah, so we're going to go back a little bit in time, and we're going to look at Jeremiah and one of Jeremiah's colleagues. 
But Jeremiah was born in 646 BC. And just a really quick history lesson, about 300 years before Jeremiah is born, the Israelites are split into two nations. And so you've got Israel in the north, you've got Judah in the south. About 100 years before Jeremiah is born, God finally has had enough with the sin of the nation of Israel. They've refused to repent. They refuse to turn away from their idolatry. And so God carries out judgment on the nation of Israel by allowing the Assyrians to take over and to conquer them. And now Jeremiah comes onto the scene and things are no better in the nation of Judah. Judah is unrepentant. They're carrying on in their sinful ways. They have fully uh, committed themselves to idolatry uh, and God has had enough. And so Jeremiah comes onto the scene and, and you got to understand Jeremiah, he's a shy, quiet kind of guy. He's a poet. Probably much more comfortable in a hammock in the backyard or floating in a canoe, writing poetry and songs for his country uh, men and women to sing. But God has a different plan. You see, God calls Jeremiah to be a prophet and to proclaim the word of God in perhaps the most darkest period of the nation of Judah's history. Jeremiah, his ministry spans over the reign of five different kings. And when I, when I think of that, when I first read that and realized that, I thought, man, could you imagine? Like, it's, it's, it's really interesting to look at someone like Billy Graham or, or, you know, one of these famous preachers who've served for decades and to, and to look at all the victories and successes and wonderful experiences and stories that they can share. And so Jeremiah's ministry has spanned the reign of five different kings, and yet you look at the results. His message is utterly rejected by those in leadership. Jerusalem and the temple are destroyed. His people are overtaken by the Babylonians and languish in exile for 70 plus years. Jeremiah's initial message was one of repentance. He was calling the nation of Judah to repent of their sinful ways, to repent of their idolatry, to turn back to their redeeming God, the God who loved them, the God who had made them. But eventually, Jeremiah's message turned. And his message was one of warning that the time was up, that God had had enough that their refusal to hear his word, their refusal to repent was going to bring judgment upon them. Just to give you a little example and to move us from Jeremiah 1 all the way into Jeremiah 25 in 10 quick minutes. Listen to something that God asked Jeremiah to proclaim to the nation of Judah. If I can 
Therefore, the Lord Almighty says this, because you have not listened to my words, I will summon all the peoples of the north and my servant Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, declares the Lord, and I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants and against all the surrounding nations. I will completely destroy them and make them an object of horror and scorn and an everlasting ruin. I will banish from them the sounds of joy and gladness, the voices of bride and bridegroom, the sound of millstones in the light of the lamp. This whole country will become a desolate wasteland, and these nations will serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Imagine if that was the message that you were asked by God to declare to the people. It wasn't a really nice message. No one wanted to hear the message. Once again, as the result of proclaiming the words of God given to him, Jeremiah faces threats of arrest and death. What I love about the book of Jeremiah is it's so transparent. It doesn't try to hide things. And as you read through Jeremiah, one of the things that's so revealing to me is that Jeremiah got to certain points in his ministry where he wished he wasn't a prophet. He wishes that he didn't have to declare the words of God, that God would stop giving him the words of God to say. And yet when push came to shove, he couldn't stop. He couldn't keep himself from proclaiming the words uh, of God. And I find in that, just turning back to Jeremiah uh, 20, around verse 9, and, and we find Jeremiah's complaint. And, and I find, as someone who stands up here time to time, and maybe for some of you who are involved in, in, in evangelism, I've had people in different contexts say to me, but... But not everyone gets to stand up here and have everyone's attention for 30, 35 minutes. And my response often is, well, it's not as glamorous as you might think. Like the 35 minutes you hear has come from 20 or 25 hours of study. And you don't see me sitting in my office trying to understand a passage, trying to put thoughts and ideas on paper and crumpling up paper and throwing it into the wastebasket and crumpling up another piece of paper until I'm surrounded by crumpled up paper and I've got nothing. And I'm going, why do I have to preach this Sunday? And I share that with people and they go, well, then why do you do it? I say, I can't help it. I have to. There is a passion within me because God has gifted me that way. And when I hear the stories of, of like Al and Natalie and those who, who are involved in evangelism, Peter wrote, and I hear of the stories of rejection and, and opposition and, and people laughing in their face, ridiculing them. I go, why bother? Why do you do that? And these people that have got the, the, the spiritual gift of evangelism say, because we can't not do it. There's a passion of doing it despite 
all the opposition and the ridicule. And that's what Jeremiah says. Even though he questions, why do I have to be a prophet? Why do I have to utter these words, God, that you've given me? In Jeremiah 20, it's Jeremiah he's complaining. He says, you deceived me, Lord, and I was deceived. You overpowered me and prevailed. I'm ridiculed all day long. Everyone mocks me. Whenever I speak, I cry out, proclaiming violence and destruction. So the word of the Lord has brought me insult and reproach all day long. But if I say I will not mention his word or speak any more in his name, his word is in my heart like a fire, a fire shut up in my bones. I'm weary of holding it in. Indeed, I cannot. And so nothing is going to stop Jeremiah from proclaiming the word of God. And this brings us up to chapter 36. So again, in five minutes, we've now covered a whole bunch more uh, of Jeremiah. And we get to kind of the meat of what I want to talk about uh, this morning. Jeremiah 36, uh, the year is 604 B.C. King Jehoiakim has been on the throne uh, for four years. And it's a critical time. It's a critical time in two ways. One, uh, God has had enough. Now is the time that he's going to judge the nation of Judah because of their unrepentant ways. But it's also a critical time because God wants his message. He wants his words to be clearly proclaimed to the people. And he wants Jeremiah to clearly proclaim the words of God. But there's a problem. Jeremiah has been banned from the temple courtyard. If he's going to proclaim the word of God clearly to the people of the nation, he needs to have access to the temple courtyard, but he's been banned. And for him to go into the temple courtyard, he would face arrest, perhaps even death. And so 22, 23 years into his ministry, Jeremiah has been rejected He's been humiliated. He's been beaten. He's been threatened with arrest. He's been threatened with death. He's been labeled uh, as out of touch. And now he's been silenced. What more can God ask? Like, it, it isn't enough enough. And yet as we read chapter 36... We're going to see that God has a plan. So if you've got your Bible, let's, uh, let's read through chapter 36. In the fourth year of Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, king of Judah, this word came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Take a scroll and write on it all the words I have spoken to you concerning Israel, Judah, and all the other nations from the time I began speaking to you in the reign of Josiah till now. Perhaps when the people of Judah hear about every disaster I plan to inflict on them, they will each turn from their wicked ways. Then I will forgive their wickedness and their sin. And so what's God's plan? It's quite simple. Jeremiah, I want you to take 22 years of words that you've gotten from me, all your sermons, everything that you have proclaimed, and I want you to write them down. Maybe not so simple. If they've silenced you, then you're going to put it into writing. Carrying on. So Jeremiah called Baruch, son of Neriah, 
And while Jeremiah dictated all the words the Lord had spoken to him, Baruch wrote them on the scroll. And so I don't know how long that took. And Baruch is a scribe, so he likes doing these kind of things. But Jeremiah dictates and Baruch writes the words down. But then as we move into five, there's a little bit of a problem. A little problem for Baruch because Jeremiah now tells Baruch just one tiny hiccup. I'm restricted. I'm not allowed to go to the Lord's temple. So you go to the house of the Lord on a day of fasting and read to the people from the scroll the words of the Lord that you wrote as I dictated them. Read them to all the people of Judah who come in from their towns. Perhaps they will bring their petition before the Lord and will all turn from their wicked ways for the anger and wrath pronounced against this people by the Lord are great. Imagine being Baruch. You're an office worker. You like writing things down. And now you've been told by Jeremiah that you get to be the one to go into the temple courtyard and read this message that for 22, 23 years has not been accepted by anybody. Now you get the opportunity, this last minute effort, to read the words of the Lord. And and I don't know what kind of a pause there may have been between uh, verses 7 and 8, but in verse 8 it says, Baruch, son of Neriah, did everything. Jeremiah the prophet told him to do. At the Lord's temple, he read the words of the Lord from the scroll. In the ninth month of the fifth year of Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, king of Judah, a time of fasting before the Lord was proclaimed for all the people in Jerusalem and those who had come from the towns of Judah, from the room of Gamirah, son of Shaphna, the secretary, which was in the upper courtyard at the entrance of the new gate of the temple, Baruch read to all the people, at the Lord's temple, the words of Jeremiah from the scroll. And so what happens, Jeremiah reads the scroll and there's a son of one of the officials who owns a room that's overlooking the courtyard and he hears what Baruch reads. And he tells his father and he gathers, I'm, I'm kind of paraphrasing some of the verses that are to come. He, he tells his father and some of the officials, you've got to hear what Baruch Uh, has read in the courtyard. And so they get Baruch and they ask him to read it again. And so Baruch reads the scroll once again to these officials. And after listening to what Baruch reads, and after confirming that what you read, those were the words of Jeremiah, correct? Yes. They all agreed that the king needed to hear these words. Now they realized that the king very possibly was not going to look very favorably upon Baruch and Jeremiah. And so they instruct Jeremiah and Baruch to go and hide. And they bring the scroll into the king. And the king is sitting in his room and he's got a little fire pot beside him going on. Uh, And the scroll is read to him. And if we go down to verse 19, it said, Uh, Verse 19 is telling them where you you better go and hide. Don't let anyone know where you are. Verse 20, after they put the scroll in the room of Elishama, the secretary, they went to the king in the courtyard and reported everything to him. The king sent Jehudi to get the scroll and Jehudi brought it in from the room of Elishama, the secretary, and read it to the king and all the officials standing beside him. 
It was the ninth month, and the king was sitting in the winter apartment with the fire burning in the fire pot in front of him. Whenever Jehudi had read three or four columns of the scroll, the king cut them off with a scribe's knife and threw them into the fire pit until the entire scroll was burned in the fire. So imagine how you would feel if Baruch had actually been there to see what was going on. He put all this time and effort into writing this scroll. He'd had the opportunity to read it twice. It's now before the king. And how does the king respond to it? He cuts it into pieces and keeps the fire burning with what Baruch has written. The king and all of his attendants who heard all these words showed no fear, nor did they tear their, clo- tear their clothes. Even though Elnathan, Deliah, and Gemariah urged the king not to burn the scroll, he wouldn't listen to them. Instead, the king commanded Jeremiel, a son of the king, Sariah, son of Azrael, and Shemaliah, son of Abdeel, to arrest Baruch, the scribe, and Jeremiah, the prophet. But the Lord had hidden them. All that effort up in smoke. Imagine how Jeremiah would feel. Imagine how Baruch must feel. They've done everything that God has asked them to do. All that time and effort in dictating and writing is now burned and worse yet, there's a price on their head. The king wants them arrested. Surely, Enough is enough. But look how chapter 36 ends. God still has a plan. After the king burned the scroll containing the words that Baruch had written at Jeremiah's dictation, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Take another scroll and write on it all the words that were on the first scroll, which Jehoiakim, king of Judah, burned up. And on top of that, he was instructed to add to the words that were already on it. Uh, And there was very specific judgment to Jehoiakim and his household. And chapter 36 ends with Jeremiah dictating to Baruch and rewriting the scroll that had just been burned in the fire. Someone said that service Service for God that doesn't cost much doesn't accomplish much. And when you look at the story of Jeremiah and Baruch, you can't help but conclude that serving God comes with a cost. It'd be really easy, and the temptation is just to keep looking at Jeremiah. Even from the Coles note, uh, dating myself, but the Coles note summary of Jeremiah's life, it's so easy to see the cost involved in serving God to Jeremiah. Pretty well anything that could go wrong and could, could happen against him did. But for application, I want us to actually focus on Baruch. He's kind of the behind-the-scene guy. He wasn't really looking to make himself prominent. He wasn't looking for a public role. I think we can relate to him more. I think we can relate more to his experiences and we can understand the cost that Baruch incurred uh, in the service of God. And so I asked that question right at the very outset. What are the costs involved 
in being in the service of God. And I think from the story from Jeremiah and from Baruch's experience, uh, there's, there's four costs that I can come up with. Uh, there's probably a lot more. But the first cost, and, and, and they're very uh, applicable to us today, the first cost of serving God is that you might have to give up possessions, position, and personal ambitions. And that might, not so, might not be so easy to see in the story of Baruch with what I've told you about Baruch so far, but let me add a little bit about Baruch for you. Baruch was born to a very influential family of noble birth. Uh, he was highly educated. He was employed in the profession of his choice, a scribe. He would have been working with one of the, the city's officials. Years before, his grandfather was the governor of Jerusalem. Currently, his brother was in, enjoying upward mobility uh, in, in the, the city affairs. There's a very good chance that Baruch was following the same upward path. Until he said yes to serving God by working with Jeremiah. All of a sudden, the very people that he had hoped to grow in prominence with were the very people who opposed him. And once he joined forces with Jeremiah, there was no turning back. And you know, we applaud those stories. We read of the story of Baruch, and when we understand more of Baruch, we applaud his faith and his willingness to serve. We love to hear stories of CEOs or celebrities or athletes who give up everything to follow the call of God. We love to hear those stories, and yet when I read this and when I think of it, I got to ask myself, how does God's will how does God's call upon my life match up with the personal aspirations and goals and pursuits that I have for my life? And I know how easy it is to say the words and to sing the songs. God, I want your will for my life. I will do anything that you ask. I will give up everything for you. And yet I say those words, and meanwhile, I've already got my career path plotted out. I know what my retirement, or I want my retirement to look at like. I know what I want my bank account to be like. I know the, the, the hobbies and pursuits and vacation places that I want to go to. And what, what I learned from the story of Baruch is sometimes... Serving God may require that we give up possessions, that we give up position, that we give up personal ambition, personal aspirations. So that's the first cost that I see in the story. A second cost is this, is that serving God almost always has you aligning yourself with an unpopular cause. Baruch didn't just set himself against many of the officials that he was working with as a scribe. 
He chose to align himself with the most unpopular person in Jerusalem, Jeremiah. Obviously, Baruch sympathized with Jeremiah's message. Obviously, Baruch mourned for the sinfulness of the nation of Judah. Obviously, Baruch was comfortable writing out the words of Jeremiah. But to go public with them? I'm not sure that's what Baruch was looking for. And as I said, as soon as Baruch went public, as soon as he partnered with Jeremiah, he aligned himself with a very unpopular cause. I don't know if it's God's sense of humor or not, but it's interesting that the name Baruch literally means happiness. And he partnered with Jeremiah, who's known as the weeping prophet. And 2,500 years later, things haven't changed. When we commit ourselves to serving God and proclaiming his message, we are aligning ourselves with a very unpopular message in the world that we live in. I hate to think it's almost 40 years ago, sitting in the halls of the University of Toronto at a book table, hoping that someone would, instead of laughing at us or ignoring us, would stop and we could tell them about Jesus or give them a Bible or they'd ask a question about some of the pamphlets we had on. But I knew that sitting in that book table, I was aligning myself with an unpopular cause. Uh, Al's talked about setting up a table outside in the summer and handing out water bottles to people that are walking along the path and, you know, aligning ourselves with Auburn Bible Chapel and hopefully having an opportunity to, to talk to them and maybe even tell them about Jesus. That ministry is aligning itself with an unpopular cause. Because we live in a world where the message of the gospel is not readily accepted. It's not a real popular message. But serving God sometimes involves, and I would say almost always involves, aligning ourselves with an unpopular message, sometimes with unpopular people. A third cost of serving God is that we may find ourselves doing things that we would never imagine that we would be doing. It might be something tedious. Again, Baruch, for some reason, enjoyed writing things down. But I'm sure we can think of tedious things. There's so many things around the church, and you wonder, how in the world do they get done? And I know the easy answer is to say Liz, but there's a whole bunch of other people that are doing those tedious tasks around the church. And there's plenty of them. And sometimes serving God means you do tedious tasks. Sometimes it's uncomfortable things, taking you right out of your comfort zone. Baruch going public with Jeremiah's message, that was way outside his comfort zone. Baruch may have been the first person to say that phrase, that's not one of my spiritual gifts. But he did it anyways. It may require that we do tasks that are beneath our ability, i.e. sorting through plums. It may be that you're doing tasks that are above your ability, that you never imagined that you would do it, and yet serving God involves a cost. And that cost is that you may find yourself doing things you never imagined you would do. 
And then finally, the fourth cost that I see in this story and I think is very applicable to our lives is that serving God often puts us into situations where we just don't have a clue what God's doing. We don't get God's plan. Like imagine the questions that Baruch must have been asking. Why? Why did I have to write out 22 years of Jeremiah's ministry just to watch it be burned and destroyed? Why did we have to do that when you knew the king was going to reject it? Why would you allow the king to put a bounty on mine and Jeremiah's head when all we were doing was what you asked us to do? Serving God puts us in situations where sometimes we just don't understand what God is doing. And sometimes we find ourselves in situations that that, that just make us feel like we've just wasted our time. And we feel so useless. Like imagine how useless Baruch must have felt when he discovered that his scroll had been destroyed. I remember university, we put our whole year's budgeted from our InterVarsity Christian Fellowship group into throwing a concert with a, a popular Christian rock band at the time. We had about 500 seats set out for a Saturday night concert. Every penny of our budget went into that concert and about 30 people showed up. I can remember sitting with the executive of the IV, our IV group and going, why? Why did we feel so clearly that this was God's plan for us to do with our budget money and 30 people showed up? And I've never forgotten it and I'm just praying that in eternity I'm going to find out why. Because right now I don't get it. I remember here at Auburn spending two years coming up with a mission and vision statement and, 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 and us saying regularly over and over that we want to see Auburn grow through conversion and that we all need to be sharing the gospel and evangelizing. In fact, we're going to run an evangelism class and four of you showed up for it. I can tell you that those of us who were involved felt defeated. We felt useless. God, what are we doing? Why did we say all those things? Why did we spend so much time and effort? And that was the result. But you see, serving God comes with a cost and sometimes you just don't get and you don't understand the plan of God. And as I said, one of the things I love about Jeremiah, and I got to get finished here, is that it's transparent. It doesn't hide anything. And if Jeremiah was chronologically put in order, Jeremiah 45 would follow Jeremiah 36. If there's all these costs involved in serving God, why bother? Like if we were having a job fair and we were offering this great opportunity to people, and we had this line that went right down the hall here and outside, and we said to them, but we just, let me just explain something about this opportunity. But there's a very good chance that if you commit yourself to this job, you're going to have to give up some of your possessions, your uh, position, your personal um, ambitions for the future. That if you sign up for this job... Understand that you're going to be involved in a pretty unpopular cause. 
If you sign up for this job, there's going to be times where you're not going to understand what's going on. You're not going to get the plan. You're going to be left with more questions than answers. And you're going to find yourself doing things that you never imagined that you would ever do in your life. And amazingly enough, the line dwindles. No one wants to sign up. So why should serving God be any different? And when you get to Jeremiah 45, we discover that Baruch feels the same way. He's ticked off. He's been sent to Egypt with Jeremiah against his will. He's totally spent. He's weary. He's questioning the, the whole ministry experience that he just had. And he's complaining to God. And God sends a message of reminder and, 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 and rebuke. And, and I think mostly encouragement to Baruch through Jeremiah. Psalm, or Psalm, Jeremiah 45, when Baruch son of Neriah wrote on a scroll the words Jeremiah the prophet dictated in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, king of Judah, Jeremiah said this to Baruch. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says to you, Baruch. You said, woe to me. The Lord has added sorrow to my pain. I'm worn out with groaning and find no rest. But the Lord has told me to say to you, this is what the Lord says. I will overthrow what I have built and uproot what I have planted throughout the earth. Should you then seek great things for yourself? Do not seek them, for I will bring disaster on all people, declares the Lord. But wherever you go, I will let you escape with your life. We don't have the time to unpack what God says to Baruch through Jeremiah, but, but I can sum it up in two things. God says to Baruch, I hear you. I hear your sorrow. I know you're tired. I know you didn't understand so much of what just took place. But if you're going to serve me, understand it's on my terms, not yours. Serving me is not the time for personal aspirations. I think that was the rebuke. The second thing that God says to Baruch through Jeremiah is this. Baruch, I think he says this to all of you who are sitting and you've listened to me explain the cost of serving God and you're going, I get it. That's me. That was my experience. I get how Baruch feels. That's why I don't serve anymore. And God said to Baruch and he says to you and he says to me, I am the Lord. And you can find rest and you can put your trust in my sovereign control. I will not be overwhelmed. I will not be overcome. My plans will not be thwarted. I will do as I have determined. You see Baruch, you see Brent, you see everyone here at Auburn, regardless of the, of the costs of serving God, we're on the winning side. And victory is ours. Why serve God when there's so much cost? Communion, which we're going to enter into, gives us the greatest motivation and answer. As was read from Romans 12. In view of all that God has done for us, including securing our salvation guaranteeing the victory. 
Paul says the only reasonable, logical response is to offer your entire self to him. He says that's your true worship. It can equally be translated, that is your reasonable service. Why do we serve God? Why do we incur a cost? Because he gave up everything so that he could pay the price for our sin, so that we can have a right relationship with him. And all he asks is that we serve him. Daniel.